We've been making our way through this amazing book of Romans. We've been kind of trudging through some really deep, tough stuff in Romans 9. I hope you've been enjoying that. Um, I'm hearing a lot of feedback of like, hey, thank you. This has been really tough. I'm struggling, but I just appreciate you opening the Bible and and walking through this. And so keep coming back for more. We're going to go back into Romans 9 this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle. I will want you to have your own Bible open I'm going to be showing you stuff right there on the printed page today, like, like we always do here. And so grab your Bibles, Romans 9, we pick up in verse 30. But I, I want to start today with uh, an observation that I've been making over the last decade or so about the state of evangelism in the church in our country um, this is kind of a, a conviction that's really been growing for me, and I, I got to the place this week where I felt like, I just need to share this observation with the church, and I think you're going to agree with what I'm about to say, but we'll see. We'll try it on for size here. Here's what I've noticed. One of the great threats to the spread of the gospel in our time is our odd desire to want to fit in in our world. It's odd. We have this desire to be relevant, to be cool, to fit in with our culture. It's sort of like junior high on nonstop repeat. You know what I mean? I feel like the adult life is just a never-ending process of recovering from junior high school. Am I right about that? Right? But it's weird. So think about this. Like, that's, that's really odd. And it's not only is it odd for the church to go, like, we really want to fit in here. It's actually completely unbiblical. I don't know if you know this. It's almost like 21st century Christians have completely forgotten how little Jesus tried to fit in. Isn't that true? I mean, here was a guy who, like, he wasn't very relevant. He was definitely not cool, okay? He was not hip, And not only that, he was sort of controversial. Uh, 50 years ago, John Stott, one of the great authors, wrote a book called Basic Christianity. And when I I first came on the Young Life staff, before I came to River West, this was like mandatory reading for all Young Life staff people. You read Basic Christianity. John Stott, he made this amazing observation in that book. He said, yeah, if you read the gospel accounts... One of the things you notice is that no one responded to Jesus moderately. No one was like, I like him. That's the way you respond to like Mr. Rogers. You know what I mean? He's so nice and he's got a great sweater collection and stuff like that, you know. But that's, people did not respond to Jesus. John Stott says, people who listened to Jesus teach and heard the claims he made They responded in one of three ways. They ran away in fear. They turned on him murderously. And sometimes it was like graphic stuff, like not like we're just gonna put some cyanide in his kombucha or something, but we're actually gonna like kill, we're gonna throw him off a cliff. We're gonna stone the guy. Or, and the only other option was, they fell on their knees and they worshiped him as God. And they built their whole life around Jesus. And it's like, those are the kind of the three options. Isn't that interesting? And I was thinking about that this morning, and I was thinking about kind of evangelism, and I was, I was thinking, I think we need a better definition of what it means to be successful in evangelism. 
Because sometimes I think we define success in evangelism as when I get done sharing the gospel with my friend, I want them to like Jesus, right? Like, that's kind of like the Mr. Rogers thing, you know? He's just nice, and you want to be... But no one ever wanted to kill Mr. Rogers. Am I right about that? You know, but also no one ever wanted to worship Mr. Rogers. And so I think, like, I think we need a different definition of what we... How do you define success when you share the gospel, which you should, when you share the gospel with your friend or your neighbor or your roommate, what is your definition of success? I think we need to, I think we need to define success the way a mailman defines success getting the letter to your house. It's like if it gets in the mailbox, okay, and sometimes even that's a challenge for the mailman, right? But that's actually a pretty good, def- it's like your job Sister in Christ, brother in Christ, your, you know what your job is in evangelism? Communicate the whole gospel about Jesus Christ. And however your friend responds, that's up to God. Your job is not to win people to Jesus. Amen? You're not supposed to convince people or win. Your job is just to share the message of who Christ is, and then God will take care of the rest. I once heard a preacher say, If you preach the gospel boldly and people respond in faith and repentance and they they build their life around Jesus, that's success. And I'm going to preach the gospel this morning and I I have a feeling people are going to respond in faith and repentance. Okay? But here's, here's what he said next. He said, but also if you preach the gospel faithfully and people are deeply offended and they walk out, that's also success. And I was like, He didn't make that up. You know where he got that? Romans 9. Romans 9. So now will you look at it with me? Here we go. Romans 9, verse 30. Here's what Paul says next. He says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, just hold your finger there and let me just tell you what's happening here. Um, Remember now, Paul's now back to his original problem that started chapter nine, remember? Paul, Paul finishes chapter eight, he's celebrating the promises of God and then he starts realizing, but hold on a second, the vast majority of my kinsmen, the people of Israel, are cut off from Christ. They've, they've rejected Jesus, and shockingly, Gentiles are flooding into the church, and Paul stopped and said, this is a cataclysmic theological problem, and I can't just not, I can't not address it. So he takes all of Romans 9 through 11 to deal with this issue. And what Paul's doing here, he's back to the issue. And what he says now is he says, it's, it's even more shocking than you realize because look at, look at what he says in verse 30. The Gentiles were not even seeking a relationship with God. They were not even after righteousness. And somehow they're the ones who found righteousness. And the Jewish people were desperately seeking righteousness through the law. And that pursuit brought them to a place where they were cut off from God in Christ. 
Paul uses the imagery of a race. The language in there is like, a, like pursuing and attaining. You see it there in verse 30. He's saying the Gentiles, they're not even in the race. They're like, the Gentiles are like, we didn't even know there was a race. We, have no, we don't care about God. We don't know anything about right. Who, like, what is righteousness? Who cares about that? And suddenly the gospel is preached. Paul shares with Gentiles after Jews have rejected his message and Gentiles just have a radical response to the gospel. And Paul says, this is an unbelievable development. And he says, we have to slow down now and figure out what was the difference between the two responses to the gospel. Why is it the Jewish people hear about their Messiah and they totally turn their backs on him, whereas Gentiles wholesale hear this message and say, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. Paul says, we gotta talk about it. And his answer is, well, Jesus is kind of like a rock. Some people stub their toe on him and some people build their whole life on him. So look what he says next, verse 32. Why? Why, why did this happen? Why have Gentiles responded and, and, the, and the, the people of Israel have not? Because the people of Israel did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Look at this. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10, verse 1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's now talking about his kinsmen, the Jewish people. He's grieving. I, want you, I pray every day they will be saved. Verse two, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. This is God's word. I'm gonna do something I don't normally do right now. I'm actually gonna stop and I'm gonna pray real quick before we keep going because I have a feeling we're gonna need God's spirit to really help us through this passage, okay? Will you pray with me and for me? Father, as we now come to this passage, what we need more than anything, Lord, is for the powerful gift of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts. Oh, Lord God, may we be sharp right now. Would you wipe away distractions? Would you flood our hearts with joy? I pray right now as a preacher that all of my agenda, all of my effort or energy would be set aside in a sense and this would be completely, God, about you speaking to your church through your word. I pray for your help to have integrity and wisdom. Any word that comes out of my mouth, would you please sanctify it, Lord Jesus, I pray. And I ask it in your perfect name. Amen. Amen. The heart of this passage is verse 33. We look at it. If you don't understand verse 33, you're not going to understand anything else what Paul's doing. And specifically, this metaphor of a stumbling stone. We've got to get this, okay? What is Paul talking about? And if you look at 32b, right, right before that, when he says, you know what they did, the Jewish people? They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then Paul says, and this was even predicted in scripture. And then he quotes this verse, verse 33 
Look at it there in your Bible. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In ancient cultures, before there were paved roads and automobiles, a common and very jarring and frustrating experience was when you're walking down a path and you're moving and, you've, and you're tired and you, and, you st- and you stop focusing and you just thwart your foot on a rock. And I speak from experience. This is painful, all right? And you, and you drop all your stuff. And Paul is, Paul is using this imagery that would have been so sticky for the people because every single person had kicked their foot on a stone on an important journey and they fall and it's rattling and disorienting. And Paul says, I want you to hold that picture in your head because this is the way people respond to Jesus sometimes. Paul's carrying on a tradition here that was common in the early church. Even Jesus himself compared himself to a stone. There were all these passages in the Old Testament. Remember Jesus, when he, he, Jesus quoted Psalm 118 and he said, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. He's, re, he's referring to like the Jewish leadership rejecting him and he's saying it's like, they, they thought this stone was meaningless and God had a purpose for it in his foundation. But what Paul does in verse 33 is he takes two verses from the book of Isaiah that both speak of a stone that God lays down and he blends them together in one prophecy. You can go study this later. One of them is from Isaiah 28. One of them is from Isaiah 8. In one of those passages, the, the, the verse speaks of the stone as something beautiful and wonderful, something that God adores. And that's a great description of Jesus. But in the other passage in Isaiah 8, it actually says God laid down a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling God intentionally put this stone in the path of his people. So we have this thing, it's right under our noses. There's something right under our noses. It's so obvious that if we're not careful, we'll miss it. Do you see the words in verse 33, as it is written? That is a, that is a powerful little phrase. Do you know what that phrase is telling you? It's telling you, The idea of people stumbling over the reality of Christ is something that God prophesied would happen in the Old Testament. He predicted this. Now think about this. This is like so important. God chose to do this. He knew this is how some people would respond to Jesus Messiah. And he did it anyway. God in his wisdom, he knew there's gonna be something about the way of my Messiah. There'll be something about the humiliation that he'll experience. There'll be something about a Messiah who gets nailed to a cross that will be so jarring for people and so counterintuitive that they won't wanna have anything to do with him including my people, Israel. This is an unbelievable truth. And what it tells me, look at that verse, it's like there's two ways to respond. See, some people stumble over Jesus, but look at the other option. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's like if you believe in Christ, your life will never be the same. 
Now, I don't know where you are coming in here. I know many of you have put your hope in Jesus, but I have a feeling that there are some this morning who you would say, man, I have been stubbing my toe on Jesus for a long time, and it kind of hurts, right? Boy, do I pray this is the day where you have a different response. Amen? That's my prayer. Can I ask you a question? Why do people stumble over Jesus? Why? Paul gives us three reasons. I'm gonna put these up. These are sort of like if you, if you are a note taker or if you wanna pull out your phone and take a picture. I think that there are three reasons in this passage that people stumble over Jesus. The first one is a religious reason, okay? It's basically the, the, what Paul's gonna talk about here is uh, Jesus can never be found through religion no matter how zealous it is. I'm gonna show you where that is. That's in the Bible, okay? People love religion. And so sometimes religion actually becomes an obstacle to finding Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? The second reason people stumble over Jesus is because there's really only one way to respond to him and it's a scary way. It's a risky way. It it involves complete surrender in faith. And then the third reason people stumble over Jesus is because he is the goal and the only real meaning of human history. Now that, I'm gonna have to prove that one to you at the end of the sermon, but once I prove it to you in the text, you'll realize why that's such a stumbling block for people. It's a radical claim, okay? So those are the three reasons. So let me me show you in the text. Number one, religious zeal will not get you to Jesus. Now, where am I getting that? Well, look at verse Chapter 10, verse two, I'm gonna read three as well. You saw this, look at this. He's talking about the people of Israel. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And Paul meant this. And Paul got this. Paul was very zealous for God himself, right? Back when he was murdering Christians. So he knows, like their zeal for God is, is second to none. But look what he says next. They have a zeal for God and it's very religious, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Can I point something out to you, sisters and brothers? Zeal for God is not the same thing as salvation. Okay? People can be extremely zealous for God, and there are people who are zealous for God all over the globe. But that is not the same thing as salvation through Christ. Isn't that fascinating? I wonder if you've ever thought about that. In fact, as counterintuitive as it sounds, religious zeal is often the very thing that prevents a person from turning to Christ. Did you see that? Paul said they have zeal, but not according to knowledge because they're so focused on religious achievement They've totally missed the way you actually start a relationship with God. They were just achieving, achieving. See that little phrase in verse three, establish their own righteousness? That's like a three-word definition of religion right there. I'm gonna establish my own, establish my own. I'm really religious. What does that mean? I'm establishing my own righteousness. And Paul says, the problem with that is if you are on a quest to establish it on your own, when God shows up, in Christ to give you a gift of righteousness that you cannot earn, you won't receive it. Religious zeal 
Um, by the way, uh, a lot of people think, well, when we talk about religion, we're not talking about secular people, but some of the most religious people in the world are secular, right? So I'm not talking about just the standard religions of the world. Sometimes people who are secular are extremely religious. And here's the thing about religious zeal. It scratches, it's like a really great back scratch. It's like, ooh, you know, when you get a good back scratch, ah, and they just, the, being religious sometimes, it scratches all of those human desires that we have to achieve, to perform, to earn, to self-justify, I'm gonna earn it, I'm gonna prove myself. And all along the way, I also get a little bit of spirituality, but I never have to let go of control. So I can be very religious, but remain totally in control of my life. And Paul says, the danger with that is, that kind of religious pursuit, it's like Jesus is very offensive to that. The message of the gospel. It's the word scandalous. You want to look in verse 33? Do you see that word um, offense in verse 33? A rock of offense. That is the Greek word. Listen to this Greek word. You don't have to know Greek to hear this. It's the word scandalou, which is where we get our word scandalous. It's like, this is not just like, I disagree with Jesus. This is like, this is scandalous. I'm offended. This is outrageous. It's like you have a visceral response. And it was the cross in particular that was such a scandal for the people of Israel. It was the mess. What did Paul say? We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling stone for Jews. It's like offensive to Jewish people and it's folly to the Greeks. For some reason, it was a crucified Messiah. The, the religious people of Israel heard that and they thought, this is outrageous. Outrageous. Remember that moment when Jesus asked Peter, this is Matthew 16, he, he's like, Peter, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter goes, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that moment? And Jesus was rather happy with that answer, right? He was like, that's pretty good, Peter. I mean, like, like that, you got that from revelation, like flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But then Jesus immediately starts talking about what? What does he start talking about? The cross. He's like, oh, and here's the thing, Peter. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. They're gonna torture me, spit in my face. They're gonna, it's gonna be awful. They're gonna crucify me. And what does Peter say to Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. Right, this will never happen. Jesus said, this will never happen. Actually, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I messed that up, and I'm the pastor. Holy cow. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, Peter was doing great right up until the point when Jesus said, oh, and here's the thing, I'm gonna be crucified. I'm gonna be crucified. For some reason, the moment Peter heard that, he was like, no way. That is not gonna happen. Why? Why is the cross so scandalous and it's scandalous all over it's not it's 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 globally scandalous Bertrand Russell one of the great philosophers British philosopher he said no one who is profoundly human can really believe God would punish sin like this and he called the cross cosmic cruelty cosmic cruelty 
Another philosopher, A.J. Ayer, said, the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Tell me what you really think about the cross, okay? <laughs> Don't mince words. People are scandalized by the cross. Religious people and secular people. Conservative people and progressive people. It's, the cross is like an equal opportunity offender, okay? It offends everybody. For religious people, like the Jews in Paul's day and even today, maybe, maybe pe religious people in our day, they say, wait a minute, are you saying that after all of this hard work that I've put in to attain God's standards, to pursue some level of moral righteousness, are you saying that I'm basically in the exact same place as that person over there who's not done anything to try to be moral? Like, how dare you? And Paul says, that's exactly what the cross says. You need the cross, religious person, as much as the person who is completely irreligious. But then the progressive, the progressive person, so that's the person sitting in church. And then the person down on Hawthorne at the coffee shop says, wait a minute, are you saying that good people around the globe from other religions who have lived good lives, they're extremely moral, are you saying that if they don't get the message of the cross, they cannot be saved? How dare you? That is so unwoke of you <laughs> to say that, right? It's a scandal across the board, right? And, and so it's a stumbling stone for people. And I get it. You know what's really interesting? Sometimes the people who have the hardest time responding to the gospel are people who are raised in the church. And I, I say that because I was raised in the church. And I remember a moment where I was really disturbed when the message of the cross finally hit. I was like, all of my being raised in church and I'm a good kid and I try really hard, none of that matters. It's almost as if before the cross can radically impact you, it has to offend you first. You have to go, this is offensive. And I think that's the point. So that's reason number one, people stumble over Jesus is because they, they sort of prefer the control of religious zeal. But there's a second reason here, and it's the, it's the reason of faith. There's only one real way that a person can respond to Jesus. And it's radical and it's risky and it feels vulnerable. And it might be, my guess is, if some of you are re resisting Jesus, this is, this is you. I'm now in your, I'm in your diary right now. It's the humble surrender of faith. Let me, let me show you where I'm getting this and then I'm gonna show you in the text and then I'm gonna talk a little bit of it to your heart. So go to verse three. I'm gonna read verse three in, in chapter 10. Then I'm gonna go back and read 30 to 32. Here's verse three. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They dug in their heels, okay? Notice that? They dug in there. The, the, the ignorance was not a, a lack of knowledge. The ignorance was we don't want to submit to what God has revealed. So there was a resistance. Why? Now pop back up to where we started, verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. 
But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. You see the, the, the dynamic? There's like, there's like resisting and refusing to submit, and that's one approach to Jesus. And then there's the approach of faith, which the Gentiles, for some reason, they just responded in faith to Christ. Now, Paul is rehearsing here what he said over and over. He's not saying the law was terrible. He's not saying throw the law out. He was saying the whole time what the law was doing for the people of Israel was, was it was showing them no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to accomplish the law. You can't obey the law. The purpose of the law was to bring you to the end of your own self-righteousness and show you no matter how hard I try, I never reach God's standard. The point was, the law was telling the people of Israel, look through the law and look to the one who will come, the Messiah, who will actually save people from their sins. He'll actually be able to accomplish the law. But the people of Israel resisted that. They didn't want to submit to that. Why? Back to their religious zeal. They wanted to try to keep earning it through the law. And Paul says, it's never going to work. It's precisely because the people of Israel desired to achieve their own salvation that they failed to believe in Christ. For believing in Christ gives all the glory to God, while observing the law means the glory and the praise accrues to human beings. This is an important truth. Now, let me say something, folks. I want you to realize that I understand how scary it can be to totally surrender yourself to Jesus. This is a big moment, okay? It's not just some lighthearted thing. Even when I get up here and preach, I recognize I'm calling people into a very vulnerable kind of a response, a total surrender. Because basically what you're doing, and, and this is why we resist it, what you're doing is you're saying, Jesus, I'm gonna completely let go of the steering wheel. I am giving over control. In fact, I'm getting out of the driver's seat and I'm gonna let you run the show in my life. I took driver's ed when I was a sophomore in high school and my driver's ed teacher was the most interesting human being I've ever met, okay? Like many, driver's ed people in general are very interesting, right? You gotta be a strange soul to wanna teach adolescents how to drive a two-ton murdering machine. But anyway, and this guy would never make it today because he would, he would have, he'd get fired in day one because his teaching philosophy was sort of a combination of psychological and verbal abuse with insults, all right? He would just insult you and he would throw in phrases like, oh, my aching GI back and all this stuff. But I got, I got into the car and there I was, I had the, the, the steering wheel and everything. And when I looked over and I looked down on the ground, this guy had installed a brake on his side of the car. Have you ever seen a car like this? He had his own brake. And I was like, this is really brilliant. And it's really awkward because I'm driving and there's moments where the car is jerking, okay? Here's my point. Some of you, you still have your foot on the brake. And for some reason, you're really frightened. And I get it. It's like, ah, I just, I wanna keep tapping the brakes. 
I don't wanna let Jesus totally take over. So I've got my foot on the brake and I'm just sort of tapping that brake a little bit. And here's the problem with that. All the joy, all the worship, all the freedom in the Christian life, all the ability to step out and actually live with, uninhibited for Christ, all of that happens at the moment when you totally take your foot off the brake and let, let Jesus roll. Amen? Thank you. Thank you. There are, there are some signs that you might still have your foot on the brake. You're just, you're just sort of tapping the brake, okay? I want to share with you five signs. I don't want to share this to discourage you. I want to share this to help you. Because if, if this is true, if one of these is true, really true of you, it's possible that today is your day to like completely surrender. Signs that you haven't totally surrendered. You're sort of like, you're, you still have your hands on the wheel, okay? One of them is you have a hard time talking about your own brokenness and sin. Now think about why, why, would we, why would we, especially in the church, in the church with another brother or sister in Christ, why would it be hard for me to admit that I'm broken? Because that's the whole point. <laughs> that's why we're here. It's like, I'm broken. Maybe it's because I think, man, that person is no longer gonna love me or like me or you know, they're gonna like look down on me. But man, in a gospel-centered church where we believe the gospel, like if there's one thing we ought to be able to do with each other, it's talk about our brokenness to each other, right? Sometimes I think we don't want to talk about our brokenness because we're afraid that it reveals that we're not super religious, we're not earning our salvation. But that is the whole point. You can't earn your salvation. Here's another one. You have, a, you have difficulty forgiving others. If you have a lot of difficulty forgiving others, it's possible you don't realize how deeply and profoundly you have been forgiven in Christ. You're still trying to earn something, right? You feel uncomfortable around messy people. And I don't mean physically messy people, right? I mean emotionally, spiritually, people who are sort of, they're not all put together. If, those, if people make you uncomfortable when their lives are messy, that might be a sign that you don't realize how messy your life is, right? That should be another amen, okay? Like, people are just messy. And I, I hear this sometimes in the church. It's like, sometimes I'm afraid to let people know how much of a mess my life is because I don't know how they're gonna respond to me. And what I want more than anything is a church where we can just be real with each other, talk about what's going on, right? Here's another one. You get bored with the gospel, okay? I wanna talk about this one for just a minute. Gospel people never get bored when the gospel's preached on a Sunday. Religious people get bored with the gospel. Religious people go, yeah, yeah, I get the gospel. Move on to something practical. Like, tell me how, you know, you know, tell me how to understand my childhood or, or tell me how to vote or talk about anything. Just stop talking about the gospel. But gospel people never get bored with the gospel. G.K. Chesterton, he had this amazing illustration. He was like, gospel people respond to the gospel the way children respond when you do something that makes them laugh really hard where they say, do it again. You know that moment? 
You're like desperately trying to entertain this kid and then you find something that makes them laugh and then they're cracking up and they're like, do it again. And you just keep doing it over and over and, and you're, before long you're like, lock me in a padded room, please. But the kid's like, do it again, do it again, okay? This is how I want you to respond every Sunday when I preach the gospel. Just do it again, okay, right? You, you never get bored of the gospel because you know the, the message of Christ crucified and raised from the, on the third day is my life. I'm building my whole life around this. I need to hear it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, right? Do it again. And then one more. I won't talk a lot about this. You don't really talk about Jesus that much. You talk about God, you talk about spirituality, but you don't really boast in the cross. In your conversations, you, you, it, you, you find that it's not really rolling off your lips that often. I am, my whole life has been transformed because Jesus died on a cross for my sins. What did Paul say? I will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Let's be people who boast in the cross. Talk about Jesus, right? River West, I'm gonna say something to you right now that I mean with all of my heart. I believe that the Christ who was nailed to a cross is the one who has the power to change your life. He has the power to change your life. Why do I know that? He changed my life. Many of you, he changed your life. Only the Christ who was nailed to a cross a political Christ can't change your life. A Christ of health and wealth cannot change your life. But a crucified Christ, a humiliated Christ, and a risen Christ, he can change your life. Amen. Amen. And that's what I want to happen this morning. Okay, one more. One more reason. I'm just, I, oh man, I wish I had more time. I do not have time to deal with this one. But um, let me show you the third reason. It's right there in verse four. Look at this verse. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me tell you what that verse does not mean. Paul's not saying the Old Testament law, the Torah is now obsolete. We don't care about it. We don't read the Old Testament. We do. At our church, we love the Old Testament. There's a, there might be a better way to actually state this verse. I made a slide. Leslie, do we have this slide? This is probably the better way to phrase this. For the end goal of the law, because it's the word telos, so the goal, the goal of the law or the, the purpose of the law, the, the, the climax of the law was always meant to be a Messiah for righteousness. That was the point of the law. It kept pointing the people of Israel forward. And Paul says, now that, we, now that Christ has come, he's died, he's been raised from the dead, there's, it, it makes no more sense to keep pursuing the law for righteousness. Now the Messiah has come, you, you, find your, 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 you find your righteousness through faith in Jesus. So, but why, why is this a stumbling block? Well, Here's my answer. Look at that verse again. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think Paul is saying something more here than just about religion. This is bigger. 
This is a redemptive historical statement. It's a global, this is a history statement. Paul's saying, according to God, what is the purpose of human history? And Paul says, according to God, the purpose of human history is Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, and his future glorification. Paul would say, how do you describe human history? Creation, fall, redemption in Christ, glorification. The whole thing, it only makes sense if you've got Jesus right in the middle. He is like the historical key to understanding all of human history. But you can understand why that's a controversial message. Because a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, you're saying Jesus Christ is the key to understanding human history? That is a bold statement. Tim Keller said, it's like the annoying exclusivity of Christianity. You're saying like, Jesus is like the key to understanding Christianity. But I think what Paul would say is he would say, it would make sense that Paul, it would make sense that God, if he, once he provides salvation through a Messiah, it would make sense that he would say, that is now the only way into a relationship with me is through the one that I provided. It was never intended to be exclusive. It was intended to be inclusive. I've given you the key. How could that be exclusive? I'll illustrate like this. If I walked up to you after the service and I handed you my keys and I said, I'm giving you my Toyota 4Runner, and this is never gonna happen, okay? <laughs> Not happening. But let's just imagine, I walked up and I was like, here's the keys to my 4Runner, but I said, but here's the thing, only one of these keys will start the ignition. You, you need that one. You wouldn't say to me, that is so annoyingly exclusive of you. Why would you make it so that only one of your keys, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> you would never say that. You would say, thank you, Pastor Adam, for giving me your forerunner, which is never gonna happen, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and here's the point. God has said, I'm giving you the key to a life that will be forever changed. Righteousness, a relationship with me. You'll never, this is the, from this point on, your life will be filled with joy and purpose and a mission. You'll still have problems, you'll still have brokenness, but this is the way in to a relationship with me. Is it, is it one way in? Yes, absolutely, through Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. And folks, this is, why, this is why in our church we talk about Jesus every week. Next Sunday when you come back, we're gonna talk about how important the, the evangelism is and preaching the gospel. So come back and join us for that. But right now I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. Will you bow your heads with me? Well, Lord, we... We recognize, Father, that everything that Paul is saying in this passage is absolutely true. There's not sort of a moderate response to Jesus because the claims are radical. And so really, you, there's really only two ways you respond to him. You stumble over him or in humble faith, you fall to your knees and you build your whole life around his claims.
and how I pray for that this morning, right now in this service. I know, Lord, I, I sense right now in my spirit there are some who are struggling. They're not struggling to understand what they're hearing. It makes sense intellectually. They're struggling with the claim that sin is real and that it's messy and, and it's my sin and that I needed to be saved. And so how I pray in this moment of quiet, Lord, as we reflect and we get ready to go to the table, this might be a moment where you would meet meet some of my friends here today in power. Invite them, God, woo them to a response of faith, I pray. As your head is bowed and you're just listening and reflecting, can I ask you a question? Are you, do you still have your foot on the brake? Are you tapping the brake right now? I think Jesus would say it's time to let go. And that could just be a humble prayer. Jesus, I surrender. I want to build my life around you, Lord Jesus. I believe what I'm hearing about the cross and the resurrection. And I put my hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And so how we pray for that response this morning, Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your perfect name. Everybody said. Amen.